0: we as most of you will know are in the book of revelation for those of you who don't know oh, by the way welcome you if you're here for the first time or back a few students back which is lovely to see you if you uh, haven't seen for a few months so that's that's brilliant um, so welcome the um, say we're in the, we're in the book of of revelation we've been working through it over the last number of, of months really and Last week and this week, and actually probably the week after, again, I'll have this, I this. I hope to get through it in, in uh, two weeks. Initially one week, now i gone to two weeks, it's now moved to three weeks. Um, we're, we're, we're going through a, a section in the middle of Revelation from chapter 5, or starting at chapter 6, through to roughly about chapter 19 or 20, which is some of the more challenging um, pictorial, symbolic passages of Revelation. So we're, we're working our way through them. We went from chapter 6 through to, I think, end of chapter 12 last week. We're going to pick it back up again in chapter 13 and probably finish around about chapter 18 today. So it's a little bit of an overview, but hopefully picking out some thoughts about what hopefully God is is saying through his word to us. So I'm just going to pray for a moment, just ask for God's help and God's wisdom. Um, And so Father, I want to pray, Lord, that you would just be with us as we come to your word once again. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it that it changes lives. And Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel, Lord, and for all that you have done for us. So, Lord, we want to pray now as we come to your word that you would just help us to understand this. Father, that by your spirit that you would just speak into our hearts. Lord, just, Father, use my words, Lord, for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen said, last week we said that the book of Revelation in many ways was a celebration that the devil has been defeated. That Jesus Christ is victorious. So that's where we stand. That's that's, that's the, 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 the big heading really. The devil has been defeated. Jesus Christ is victorious. But defeat doesn't mean destroyed, at least not yet. So the reality is right now is that although the devil is defeated, he is So to move into chapter 13, John now sees a vision of the dragon, which is the devil. This is Satan standing on the seashore. And two beasts rise up either side of this dragon. One comes from the sea, the other comes from the land. And the dragon delegates his power to these two fantastical creatures. One is identified only simply as the beast which makes war on the saints and on the church of God. In fact, it curses God. You read that in chapter 13 and verse 4. The other is identified as a false prophet. It's another beast, but it arises and it convinces the people to worship the first beast. That's verse 11. Now, these are the devil's two henchmen. They're primary agents through which he operates within our world, and he's actually making war against God's people. The first beast is actually very similar to the beast that are described in Daniel chapter 7, which is really a combination of beasts that represent kingdoms that rule this world with opposition and with terror. So this beast is described in Revelation 13 represents world powers, its governments, and its states. So let me give you an example of this from the first century. In the first century, Roman empires had this tendency to assume divine powers. So on his coins, Nero was referred to as the saviour of the world. Nero probably massacred many thousands of Christians, probably. Then another guy, Domitian, was addressed as our Lord and God. But I don't think that this beast necessarily represents just one state, or one individual. Instead it symbolizes a recurring pattern of satanic influences down through the ages that come through corrupt and evil political powers. But you'll also note that the beast from the sea, represented by godless political powers, doesn't work alone. Again, another example is probably helpful here, this time from nineteen seventy five to seventy nine in Cambodia, about of the people and 90% of the church were wiped out. The powers responsible were the Khmer Rouge, led by Pol Pot. But what drove them to such atrocities was the atheistic, man-centered belief. The Marxist ideology was the false prophet that served the, the beast of political power. Now, there are many more false ideologies that i have achieved very similar tragic results. I guess a good example comes from the World War where Hitler rose up. Hitler, his ideology was this perfect race. He destroyed many Jews. He wiped out many other minorities as well. But his ideology fed his political power and his political way forward. And no one false of these false ideologies is any worse than any other but all are used by the devil to deceive people so that they will rebel against god this is symbolized in chapter 13 and verse 16 where people receive the mark of the beast now, I don't think this mark is necessarily physical any more than the seal on the foreheads of the Christians in chapter 7 and verse 3 was physical. Remember, we talked about that being the God's Holy Spirit given to us as, as, as Christians, as the mark that we are sealed by Christ and protected by Him. But it's talking about a spiritual reality. Everyone is marked out for their loyalty, either towards the beast or towards God. It is in, then in verse 18 of chapter 13 that the famous idea of the devil's number being six, six, six comes through. Though so in fact, if you read it properly, it's actually man's number. And numbers again in Revelation is, will tend to be very symbolic. So the number seven is the perfect number. The number three is divine and in, in a sense it's the trinity. So 777 would be a number representing God. So 666 is a number of man pretending to be God or fallen short of God, a fitting description of the beast's followers. One day... There will be this final manifestation of a beast with the where would be the ultimate dictator known as the Antichrist. Read about it in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three to four, and in first John chapter two and verse eighteen. But looking out for the six, 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 either on his forehead or on his scalp somewhere, is missing the point. It's taking something literally that is meant to be taken symbolically. So From chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, through to chapter 15, there's a series of seven visions of the future. Each one of them is introduced by the phrase where John says, I saw, or I looked. In fact, it's part of a greater series of visions. Actually, you'll see all the way through Revelation of seven letters, and seven seals, and seven trumpets, and seven visions, and seven bowls, and seven plagues. There's a sort of theme going on here. But if you remember back to chapter 7 and verse 4, where God sealed 144,000 with his mark of ownership upon them. Well, since then, we have seen God's people facing all manners of trials from the devil and from the agents, his, the beast. But actually, in the beginning of chapter 14 we will see that exactly the same number are enjoying a mountaintop party, celebrating and worshipping God. And not one of them has been lost in spite of the best and actually the terrifying efforts of the enemy. See, if you're one of God's people, if you've given your life over to Jesus Christ, no one and nothing can, can snap you or, to, or, or snatch you out of the Father's hand. You are absolutely secure in Christ. The exact number we're seeing at the beginning and even through all of these tribulations, they reach their eternal security in Christ. If you follow Jesus, you will be there. And you will join with Jesus and his righteous followers and and celebrate in Zion. Now Zion is an Old Testament name for Jerusalem. Read about it in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6. And it, it became the name for the end time city of God. And in the same way that God's Old Testament people were heading up to Jerusalem every year, so we are pilgrims on a journey. We're heading towards the heavenly city, and we're not wandering around aimlessly in life. We have a clear destination. We know where we are going. We're heading to Zion. We're heading to the city of our king. In fact, this is what John Newton wrote about in his hymn, another great old hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Zion's city of our God, God whose word cannot be broken, form thee from his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's wall surrounded, thou mayst smile on all thy foes. And there's a real sense here that this gathering on Mount Zion is both present There's a sense in which it begins right here, right now, as God's kingdom comes on earth, as it is in heaven. We start, we get a sense of something of that now as we worship and as we praise God. But it will one day come to its absolute fullness in the future when Jesus Christ comes back. Halfway through chapter 14, suddenly everything changes you imagine watching a really feel-good film and then you flick the channel over to an age-of-your-seat thriller? In this chapter, we get that kind of change of mood and scene as the picture switches from celebration to judgment, announced by three angels flying overhead, chapter 14, verses 6 to 13. And as they come, they are warning about the fate of those who worship the beast instead of going God's way. And this is the reality of judgment, but it's also the offer of salvation. And John's message should provoke non-believers to repent, but it should also provoke believers to share the gospel. But we all need grace. We need grace to help us to grapple with this revelation of coming judgment to allow God to use it to keep us going in obedient faith to keep following and serving him but also to give us just a real urgency and also a compassion for those who are lost and a compassion in the way in which we share the gospel so in this chapter there are pictures of two harvests at the end of time the first harvest is the harvest of salvation it's sort of comes out a little bit of what's talked about in Matthew so it talks there in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12 it's where the son of man gathers his wheat into his barns or Matthew 24 verse 31 how he gathers his elect from the four winds this harvest of salvation those who have come by to faith in Christ are gathered in but there's a second harvest This is a harvest of judgment. And God will judge the evil and sins of this world. This is a little bit like the parable of the wheat and the tares. And I wonder, does the God that you believe in judge as well as save? Because if he doesn't, he is not the God of the Bible. Now it's not that God delights in judgment. He really wants people to turn to Him and to live for Him for all of eternity. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But in the end, He will overthrow his enemies. In the end, there is a day of judgment coming, and these two harvests are very, very real, but they're also very, very different. And after the terrifying vision of judgment, the final vision in the series of seven switches back to the the celebration channel. And the people of God, who in the fourth vision were praising him on the mountaintop, they're now by the seaside. Let me read to you a few verses from Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with seven last plagues laugh, because with them God's wrath is complete. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, There were those who had been victorious over the beast and its images and over the numbers on its name. They held harps given to them by God. They sang of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name for you, Alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For you are, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Revelation 15 verses one to three. And if you are a Christian, this is where you're heading. If you know and love Jesus, this is where you're going. So drink in the scene, be excited by it and praise God. The raging sea is an Old Testament picture of the power of evil. It's the forces of chaos and decreation. But on this last day, this sea is going to be calm, like a mill pond, because of God's victory. The sea also reminds us of the exodus. As God's people were rescued from Egypt, brought them through the sea into his land, one day there's going to be another exodus when God brings his people out of this world and to his heavenly city. And there's going to be singing. When the Lord rescued the Old Testament people, they and Moses, they sang songs to him. On this last day, with the ultimate rescue is complete, God's people will sing. But also, we can sing along the way, just as the Israelites did. And singing is one way in which God's people celebrate his rescue of us, but actually we also remind one another of what it is to be his rescued people. So when we meet together, as we do, we sing. How could we do anything less? But there's also going to be justice. And we know that God's judgment is right and that it's coming. But at times, we can still find it very hard to come to terms with. But in this last day, we will not struggle with God's justice, but we will praise him for it. And we will see clearly the way the king of the nations has done everything is good and is right and it's just. So let's give thanks to him. And we started now. How great, how marvelous is Jesus? So we have seven letters seven seals, seven trumpets, seven pictures, and now we get to the seven plagues, which bring suffering and destruction to the wicked. And so far, these series of seven have provided just different camera angles, I would suggest, on the the last period of history, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. But these seven plagues describe the final judgment of God at the end of history. Verse 15... Chapter 15, verse 1 says, With them God's wrath is complete. So we come to the final judgment of God. Now this isn't just the machines of our world just somehow breaking down. These end time events are God's active, deliberate judgment on human sin. And sin is something that separates us from God. It's something that breaks relationship between us, and a holy God. But if we don't understand God's character, we won't understand his judgment. And if we don't understand his judgment, we won't understand the cross. Because at the cross, is where God took upon himself the judgment that you deserved. Listen, your sin was paid for, it was dealt for absolutely and completely through Jesus Christ. That is the offer of hope to all who come to him by faith. Through him we find forgiveness of sins. And as we grasp this, as we grasp all of this, it should help us to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us, but also help us to face the end of this world And appreciate more and more everything that Jesus Christ did when he died for you on the cross. And remember absolutely that he did it all for you. And that's the key thing. So with the pouring out of these seven bowls, the cry goes out in chapter 16, verse 17. It is done. In chess, it's said that the final stage of the game is sometimes called the end game. And the way the end game works out in chess, well, it actually will vary a lot from, from game to game. But when it comes to the end of our world and to human history, we already know how this end game is going to unfold because God has revealed it to us. There's going to be a final onslaught against God's people at the end of history at Armageddon. Now, this probably refers to an area in central Israel, but... The location of this battle is probably no more literal than Babylon is a few verses later in chapter 16 and verse 19. You see, place names are used symbolically in Revelation. So watching out for events in the Middle East for fulfillment of this is probably missing the point. Can't stay with absolute certainty, but it's probably missing the point. In God's final judgment, there will be the ultimate breakdown of the cosmos... It won't be the question of, and they all lived happily ever after. Instead, it is the ultimate confirmation of the truth. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers... So they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the, in, who is the image of God. And listen, no matter how some people will suffer, no matter how bad things are going to get, some people are still going to curse God. They're still going to turn from him. They're going to have no time for him unless, unless he intervenes in undeserved mercy. Second Corinthians goes on to say in verse 5, Chapter 4, verse 5. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And listen, in all of this talk of judgment, there is always always hope through Jesus. And that is the important thing as we, we, we look at some of these, these difficult passages that we, they, they are pointing to Christ. They're pointing us and calling us to faith and to hope and to forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ. But John then goes on to explain why people will curse God. And John's vision of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, gives us an understanding, an explanation of why people curse God and why they refuse to repent. So in chapter 17, Babylon is pictured as a prostitute. In chapter 18, it's as a city. In both cases, Babylon is very attractive. And what is astonishing is that for a moment, John is quite dazzled by her. He's almost taken and he's captivated captivated by her. There are city guidebooks covering probably every major city, Bangkok, Barcelona, Beijing, Boston, but you won't find one for Babylon. And the reason is that ancient city is now in ruins in, somewhere in Iraq. So why is chapter 17 and chapter 18 devoted to this city? And why does it matter to us today? Well, because in Revelation, Babylon is used to symbolize any society organized independently of God. It's what in his letter John talks about as the world. And one of the great attractions of Babylon is the natural reward it offers. Prosperity. It tells us to forget God, to focus instead on making as much of the wealth as we have as possible, to spend it on ourselves, to dream of, to attain, to, to enjoy just the life of luxury. And this aspect of Babylon is certainly not in ruins today. It's very much alive. It's very much at work. In fact, the phrase, I would be truly content if only I had dot 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 or i'd be really happy if i had that new car or that new iphone which is waterproof phenomenal not jealous but you know, and we, we get we get sucked in don't we and that's actually very normal for us today and we we're all at risk of being dazzled and duped by babylon But to throw in your lot with Babylon is also to become part of a hugely successful enterprise. It's about power. And it's impressive. You know, it's a club that will attract all the top people. In fact, a a, a club people really want to join. And this world wants to to seduce Christians back to becoming card-carrying members of Babylon. And the pressure to compromise is huge. The love of money, the desire to be seen to be successful and powerful, it's there. But there's another way. In fact, there's a much better way. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to look towards something So much greater, so much better. You need to be living in the all-surpassing riches of knowing Christ and seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. And if you are a Christian, it is essential that you stay spiritually awake and alert, that you keep living by faith. You seek to obey God. You repent of your sins because one day this world is going to come to an end. And what looks so secure, what looks so certain one day will come to an end. And this chapter shows us the attractiveness of Babylon, but it also exposes the true nature of Babylon. A world organized independently of and in rebellion against our Creator. This is a demonic alliance. And the picture here is of a woman, a prostitute, sitting on a beast. Revelation chapter 17, verses 8 to 14 gives us more details about this beast. The seven heads and the ten horns represent kings. But as so often in this letter, the numbers are probably just symbolic. But the point is that secular rulers and authorities will be used by the devil to promote the values of Babylon. So don't miss the force of this. A society organized without reference to God offers attractive prosperity and power, but is inspired and is driven by the devil himself. We must not be taken in. And this demonic alliance between the prostitute and the beast makes Babylon the deadly enemy of God's people. And through the attractions of Babylon, the devil is seeking to seduce God's people away from the Lord and to tempt them into spiritual idolatry. So how do you describe your relationship with Babylon? How do you describe your relationship with this world? Are you flirting with it? Are you in love with it? In bed with it? And this chapter is a warning for us to be aware of its strategies and not to be taken in. And if you were the devil, what would you dangle in front of your face to encourage you to love something more than God. Truth is, we all have weaknesses. It's good to know our strengths. It's also really important we know where we are weak. What what would Satan dangle in front of you that would lead you away from him? What guard do you need to put in? What protection do you need to put into your life to prevent that from happening? The reason the Bible doesn't pull any punches is because this danger is real. This is serious, and it's often unseen. Since we live in Babylon, it's hard for us even to notice her all around us, to us. It's just normal. And I would encourage you to examine your heart to see if you are being unfaithful, if you need to return to the Lord in any particular area of your life. Belfast is famous for shipbuilding, particularly famous for that infamous ship, the Titanic. And the fate of the t- Titanic probably captures in miniature the fate of human society living independently of God, considered unsinkable. One moment that ship is going full steam ahead with the party in full swing, and the next the ship was doomed, sinking beneath the icy waters of the Atlantic Ocean in a much greater way, Babylon has no future. Divine judgment is coming. Human society going its own way may look solid and secure, but God has marked it out for judgment and for destruction. So we are told to come out of Babylon. Now some people have taken this command to separate themselves physically from sinful human society and have nothing to do with it whatsoever. They isolate themselves. They, they just keep themselves to themselves. They refuse to, to connect up with, with anything or anyone else. But that isn't what we find in the New Testament. Instead, we are told repeatedly and we're called to repent of worldliness, to pursue godliness, but to be in this world, but not off it. If one extreme wrong reaction to Babylon is to withdraw from society, and listen, that is not what we should be doing. We should be living for Christ within society. We should be light and salt within the place where we work or we study, wherever God has put us. The other reaction, which is equally wrong, is to become so absorbed in this world and with its values that we just become indistinguishable. And we need to beware. Listen, we live under grace. It's God's grace that has saved us, God's grace that keeps us. We're not under legalism, under a list of rules and regulations, but we still have to ask the question, what is allowed and what is not? What does it look like to be holy and to be righteous? Is there a line that we can cross? Can we become so relaxed about our godly living? Do we live as Christians just doing what we think we want to do? Just thinking that, you know what, my sins have been forgiven. I've got my passport to heaven tucked away in my back pocket. I'm doing okay, thank you very much. Do people look at us and just see Christians who very often enjoy the pleasures of their chosen sin, which is only spoilt a little bit by an occasional troublesome conscience or a nagging fear of consequence? Is this the impression that we're giving? Does it even concern us? It certainly should. And such behavior makes Christians look like a sham and can often cause people to turn away in disgust. This is true of you, at least in some areas within your life. Are you living for yourself? Are you living for God? It's uncomfortable? Sometimes we need to get a little bit uncomfortable. We need to be honest to search our hearts and our lives in the light of Jesus' return. What if Jesus Christ was to come tomorrow and was, you knew about it? By the way, there's no way you can because the Bible tells us that no one knows the time or date. But if he was to come tomorrow, what changes would you make to your life? What different things would you do? How would you change the way in which you talk or behave? Listen, we should be living as if Jesus Christ is coming tomorrow every day of our lives. We should be living in the light of eternity all the time. And salvation begins with repentance. It's a change of mind and action regarding sin and self and our view of God. And we cannot be saved unless we repent and we turn our backs on sin. And the idea that we can do both of these things is simply crazy. To hold on to sin is to refuse God, is to fall into the trap of the enemy. Salvation is a divine and a sovereign miracle that has got nothing to do with human effort. Truly is God's grace poured into our lives. It's everything to do with Jesus, but the Christ-centered life is both the most purposeful and meaningful life conceivable. This is part of God's divine plan, God's work within your life. And I want to encourage you to live in the truth and in the blessings and the riches that you have in Christ. Don't go back to the old way of living. Don't go back to old habits. Don't fall back into old things that take you down a route that takes you away from God said, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep looking to Him. Listen, there is nothing that can compare to life in the Spirit. There you'll find your joy. There you'll find your hope. And the warning of these end time revelations, Jesus is coming. Be ready. Are you? Are you ready to meet Him as your Lord and as your Savior? Let's just pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. And Lord, we just open our hearts before you and in the light of, of your word, Father, I pray that you would just allow the truth to touch us and to change us. Father, we pray that our hearts would be transformed, our minds renewed by your Spirit. And Father, as we examine Yourself by Your Spirit, Lord, that You would just reveal to us any areas that need to be put right before You. Lord, just speak to us now. But also as we listen, Lord, help us to take action, to do something, to make a difference this week. We pray, Lord, that we truly would be your witnesses. Faithful to you, Lord, through the ups and downs and challenges of life, through the good and the bad, and sometimes the ugly, Lord, that you would be with us. You've promised you will. Lord, help us to live in the truth of that promise. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.